How you guys doing? This is the only place that I get called Pastor Josh. In uh, Portland, they call me Reverend. No, they don't. They don't. Uh, it's good to see all of you uh, today. As I said, uh, my name is Josh White. I'm the pastor of Dorf Hope in inner southeast Portland. And soon, in a month, I've been functioning over the last month as, a, as the pastor and as a architect slash contractor because we just inherited a... Uh, a second building. Uh, we've outgrown the, the first one, so we're going to be doing mornings in the southeast, and we took on a 100-year-old church in northeast Portland on 9th and Fremont, and, uh, and I'm living out my dream, which is turning into a nightmare quickly, of, of being able to remodel um, an, an old facility from the ground up, and so we're refinishing hardwood floors, and the other day I was in danger of being arrested for standing on the railing of a boom lift 60 feet in the air, scraping our, the bell tower trim. There's a 100-year-old, 130-year-old solid brass bell in the bell tower. It's amazing. I climbed up in there, and it's like engraved 1882 from, from New York City. Um, but it's a great piece of real estate. Most of the old churches in Portland have been bought up by this restaurant chain called McMinimans, and they turn them into restaurants. So I feel like it's, it's a race it's a race for me. The gospel needs to have the churches, not restaurants. Uh, so, um, yeah. Well, I, I'm excited to be here with you guys uh, today because I, I'm going to talk to you about something that really has rocked my world over the last month and a half because not only are we in the middle of remodeling an, another building and getting ready to launch our first ever morning services, um, I, but I had a very dear friend, uh, my friend Craig Dunn, who's been at Door of Hope since the beginning of the church, uh, die of, of brain cancer two weeks ago. And I was here um, about a month. How many of you were here at the, at the 175 degree service outside? Um, <laughs> so the, I, I mentioned Craig and just that, that he was, him and his wife, Catherine, they came to faith at Door of Hope uh, the first month of the church. We've been at church now for four years. Uh, they're both doctors, pediatricians, and six months into the church's existence, Craig um, went into a seizure in the middle of the night on January 1st, 2010, to discover a golf ball-sized brain tumor um, in uh, the left side of his brain. Uh, he has three girls, 14-year-old Sid, uh, um, uh, Kelsey, a 12-year-old uh, named Sydney, and a 9-year-old named Avery, um, and they were all on family vacation when I was here uh, just a couple months ago in uh, while they were on vacation visiting, um, visiting Catherine's parents in Indianapolis, he had another seizure and ended up in the hospital. They discovered that he was now officially stage four and that he had four to six weeks to live. His two oldest girls were in Portland um, at a soccer camp, and so I got a plane ticket um, on Sunday, flew out on Monday after I was done preaching Sunday night, got up at four in the morning and escorted the girls back to Indianapolis and spent four days with Craig who thought he was going to die that week. And, uh, um, and that week I was introduced to grace in a way that I've not seen it before. Because, you know, we are a people who naturally are looking for God's presence, evidence of God's nearness in our lives. And often in the church, we, um, we fall victim to making demands of Christ that, uh, that when not answered, puts into question God's presence and availability and what grace actually means. And one of the things, obviously, we as a church have been praying for is that God would take away his cancer, that he would, that he would heal Craig. But what I saw 
in Indianapolis. And then afterwards, once I drove the three girls and their car back across the United States in 48 hours, uh, because I had to preach on Sunday, um, and Craig and Catherine got home, and we were able to spend that those final weeks with him and, and, uh, and to see a man literally pass before my eyes. We literally were around his bed uh, worshiping with him, and we sang him into heaven. It was pretty powerful at his house. And to see his wife and her loyalty as a doctor and unwilling to have hospice and who did all the hospice care of her husband, who basically was paralyzed by the last month, um, and the, the humility that was required and the compassion that I saw in both, in both Craig and Catherine and the courage to confront real fear and, and the reality of death and the, drawing the girls in and allowing them to weep and to, uh, to stay, stay uh, keep a sense of humor when his wife is changing his, his soiled clothes uh, these are these are the real intersections of grace. To watch a man uh, be so loving with a nurse as she's having to change him in the hospital in Indianapolis that she begins to weep because there's a spirit about him. That I was immediately struck with this great reality that though the outward man perished, the inward man is being daily renewed and that grace is something much deeper than, God, than these these giant things that we request of God that often have very little to do with his grace and that he might just be using the most devastating circumstances to bring about his grace in the most powerful ways. And so I want to just begin with a, with a, a simple verse that we know well. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing it is a gift of God. Okay, so the first thing that I want to pose to you guys today, um, because really we're going to spend the majority of our time in Psalm 139 at looking at the facets of grace, is that this, this declares that our salvation is a gift of grace, that it's a, it's a gift from God um, who has revealed his kindness to us through Jesus. And, and the first thing I want to ask you is, what is grace? How do you define it? Now, I'm going to take a moment to ask. I'm just going to randomly select someone here to define grace for me. You guys are so stressed. You're like, please don't call on me. The stress that immediately arises is because we often, as Christians, use a vocabulary so regularly that we actually have never taken the time to fully understand. And because we do not understand the words that we use in regards to our Christianity, we actually diminish our ability to experience the fullness of what it means because the word means nothing if we do not have the meaning. And if I was to ask you what grace is, you know, you'll, you hear the classic acrostic, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. But I don't like that acrostic because it's God's riches at God's expense. And so that doesn't spell grace. That spells Greg. <laughs> and that's problematic for an acrostic. <laughs> but if we were to begin with this verse in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us when we were dead. Made us alive together with Christ. He's shown his kindness to us 
through Christ. That our salvation is not something that we have accomplished or earned or, or entered into in our own effort, but it is something fully from God's side. God has taken the initiative to move toward us in our brokenness, essentially is what this passage says. That that immediately gives to us the most basic definition of what grace is. Grace, in the most simple and basic definition, is Emmanuel, God with us. It refers to a God that exists neither next to us or merely above us. Instead, he exists with us and for us. That is what grace is. Grace is a God who enters in to our brokenness. He does not sweep away our needs. He does not sweep away our concerns, our lacks, our wants, our problems. He doesn't put them under the rug, but he takes them up. And he literally makes them his own. And he answers and solves them better than we could ever know how to or even desire. And he does this all through Jesus. Because there is no tear too small for God to collect. Grace, essentially, is God's final word to us in Christ. Which is the word of God become human event. It's the creator who became a part of his creation. Grace is the fact that God chose to become one of us and identify himself with our brokenness so he could restore us to a right relationship with himself. It's more than the forgiveness of sins. It's more than being saved from hell that we might enter into heaven. It's about experiencing new life because we who were once dead have always been loved by God. And he has proven that love to us by moving to us in his son who comes to us as a gift without reservation or conditions. For it originates out of the depths of a God who is in himself our gift, our grace. And Jesus is that gift and he is that center, that locus for us. As a, as a community, as, as, as the church. And so grace can be defined this way. It is God making us receptive for himself and himself receptive for us. For he who knew no sin became sin. I like to put it this way, that God in Jesus became a man for our good. He lived as a man for our good. He died as a man for our good. He rose from the dead as a man for our good and was exalted to the right hand of the Father as a man for our good and now will continue for all of eternity to be a man for our good. God has some sort of unique passion for humanity. And and even more than that, which makes grace so... uh, so insane, so beyond anything we can understand is that he, he made himself available for a humanity that didn't want him. I mean, if you're going to pick something in your creation to become, it seems like humans would be the last thing that Jesus would become, that God would become, because we are the ones who rejected God. I mean, I can think of a lot of other creatures that are a lot less difficult a lot less difficult. 
But our difficulty arises for the fact, from the fact that we are made in his image, which means that there is a piece of the God's freedom that is ours, and we use that freedom to become autonomous from God, which broke his heart and broke our relationship. And grace is about the restoration of that relationship. So I just want to kind of, I wanted to lay it out in some different ways so that you're thinking about this. But now I want you guys to open up to Psalm 139. And 139, Psalm 139, which is an incredible psalm that often is used by theologians to to, uh, explore different attributes of God. But I believe they do a disservice to the psalm when they turn it simply into a theological exposition about God's omnipresence, about God's omniscience, about God's omnipotence, because none of those words you ever use in your common conversation, and none of them make me feel better about my relationship with God. But when we connect them to the heart of the gospel, when we connect it to grace, it becomes incredibly meaningful for us. And I believe that grace, as we begin to look at the different facets, grace is deep. It's deep. It moves deep. Um, And I want us to see the depth of it today. So I'm going to put the, if you don't have your Bible, um, I'm going to put these things up on on the screen for you to read. I never use... PowerPoint, but I thought it'd be helpful today. So, so the first six verses opens up for us the, the first facet of God's grace, and it reveals to us his knowledge of us. Read these verses with me. Oh, Lord, this is David speaking. Look at the personal intimacy that we have in these verses. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The first thing that we notice about God's grace is that this grace is A knowledge of us, God's knowledge of us. You see, in order to fully know someone, you must give yourself to them. And see, when we talk about God's omniscience, and omniscience simply means God's all-knowing, that there is nothing that God does not know, that actually diminishes the personal element of this psalm. Because the knowledge here, the psalmist is blown away that God knows him. Whenever you see that word know used in the scripture, when Jesus says, have, been, have I been with you so long, Philip, and yet still you do not know me, um, he's speaking of the most intimate knowledge. It's covenantal knowledge. It's, it's a relational knowledge that's, that's driven even when a man becomes united with his wife and he knows her. It's speaking of literally sexual intimacy, which is supposed to be the pinnacle of intimacy and of, of knowledge that can only be experienced, um, according to scripture, within the marriage union. And it's speaking of these levels of intimacy and our intimacy with God is to be on that covenantal side. We are called the bride of Christ. We are, we are married to Christ. In other words, the most intimate relationship that we should have in our lives is our relationship with him by his spirit. But in order to want to enter into a relationship with God, we have to believe that his grace, first and foremost, is a knowledge of us. And that knowledge tells us something powerful. What that knowledge speaks of is that he knows because he cares. He knows you because he cares about you. His knowledge of you is directly connected to his concern for you. He knows you because he is interested in your life. 
You may view your life as absolutely uninteresting. You may view yourself as someone that is not worth knowing. But the gospel, grace, says that God knows you and cares about you even when you were dead and an enemy of him. He said he cared about you when you cared nothing for him. You may care nothing for him today, but the scripture declares, my friend, that he cares deeply and affectionately for you so much that he was willing to sacrifice himself so that you could know him as he knows you. So knowledge, first and foremost, speaks of God's deep concern for you as a person. It's not simply, he knows everything, therefore he knows everything about you. That is an impersonal statement. The personal quality of God's knowledge is found in Jesus. Jesus looked on them, and he had compassion on them, for they were as sheep without a shepherd. That's the kind of knowledge. And you see, the gospel is good news because God is gracious and his knowledge of us reveals his grace toward us. And in in these first few verses, what David declares of God's knowledge is that it is patient, that it is protective, and is directive as well. And and I think about that. Think about his knowledge as patient. You know, I just read this incredible um, statement on God's patience um, uh, by Karl Barth in which he said, Uh, He said, Christians often become troubled by the fact that God continues to allow the world to to continue in a sinful state. Why doesn't Jesus just come back and set things right? Why? Why are we waiting still? You know, even even the New Testament declares that, that, that we will be taunted in the last days. Where is the coming of your Lord? And we ask, where is the coming of our Lord? How much darker does the world have to get? Why, oh Lord, have you not come? But the knowledge of God, of every individual who has ever lived, and his deep love for every human being, I do not believe that God only loves the elect, but the elect are chosen by God to bring his gospel to all. When we look at God's love and his knowledge of all, We are immediately struck by this patience of God. And the patience is this, is that God leaves room for people to exist. That in in his graciousness and compassion toward all of humanity, he gives them room to respond to his gift in his son. He gives them room to exist because that is the freedom that he gave them. And in that patience, we are struck with something that is incredibly true of God. And this is what Bart said I thought was so clever. He says, God has time. We're not patient. And we're usually the least patient with the people that we have the least amount of knowledge with. Actually, some of us are the least patient with the people we have the most amount of knowledge about. I just realized how not gracious I am when I was riding my motorcycle in southeast Portland down 12th Avenue on, uh, about a month ago in the evening and, um, and I saw this bicycle and a group of bicyclists in front of me and it was dark and my headlight's really small and, and all of a sudden I'm looking at the bare, the bare crack of a naked woman on a bicycle and then I look around and everyone on the bikes, they're all naked and, then, and, and I was like, I was so irritated at the immaturity of my city that I... I so I got immature in return, and like my motorcycle is super, it's a 73 CB750, and it's all awesome. And I, I cruised around it, around them really fast, like in lap, my mufflers are so loud. And I was like, and, and I was just reveling in the fact that it scared them. And then I, I pulled up to, the, up to the intersection, and my motorcycle died, my battery died. 
And at that moment, it was like this, there's this point in Portland where this, in last edition, there's these two roads converge. And, and I'm not joking. I pull up and all those cyclists that were behind me come up around me naked at the stoplight. And about 150 naked cyclists come on the other road and they're all converging around me and they're taunting me. And they were like, they're like, take off your clothes, get a bicycle. And I'm like, I hate you hippies. <laughs> and there was no patience. I had no, no patience. And I was like, God, how are you patient? How are you compassionate toward them? Look at them and all their parts all around me. <laughs> It was more people parts than I ever wanted to see or ever want to see again. And the worst was a man painted like the devil on a unicycle who was above my head. I'm like, ah, get away from me, Satan. It's horrible. That happens in Portland. 5,000 naked bicyclists every year, every year. And it gets more every year. You know, the awkward thing is the, night, the cyclist that gets left behind because it's all funny when you're in a group. But then when you're like stuck at a stop sign, you're by yourself naked. All of a sudden you're like, this isn't right. I shouldn't be here. (laughs) But I think about God's knowledge. He's so much more patient than us. He's so much more compassionate because he sees what people can be in Christ. And that knowledge is because he knows everything about us and he knows what we can become. So the knowledge is not only patient, he, he pursues us in spite of all of our shortcomings, but that knowledge is also protective in that it serves his compassion toward us. His knowledge of us allows him to protect us from what he could not and would not protect himself from. Think about that. Because what does he know about us? He knows we are broken he knows we are sinful, and he knows that we are, in, we are deserving his judgment because his holiness must judge that which is unholy, which is everything that is not of him. And so what does he do? His knowledge of, of our own brokenness caused him to put himself in our place, the just for the unjust. You see, Jesus is both the one who elects and is the elect, the chosen one, so that in him we are safe and protected. And there we have this protected, this protective knowledge because God, in his knowledge of us, and his compassion for us, put himself in our place of judgment so that we could live fully in him and for him. His knowledge is also directive. And I think this is interesting because, because David says, hey, listen, you're, you're not, you, you know so much about me. You hem me in behind him before. His knowledge of where David's going, he, there's a protective element to God's, to, or, excuse me, a directive um, a knowledge to, to, God's, to God's understanding of us. He, he guides us into an ever-deepening knowledge, not only of himself, but of others and ourselves. For this is what we become. That knowledge um, of us is a knowledge that is, is meant to direct us into an understanding of who he is because knowledge is relational. To, for God to know us, he now calls us to come and know him. And so first thing that we see in this first section of the psalm is that grace means this, that I am known. I am known. I am cared about. I am loved. I always say that A person may die unsaved, but no one can die unloved. No one will be able to pull that card on Jesus. No one. 
Second, look at, look at verses 7 through 12. Because here we see um, the second facet of, of grace means that his presence is with us. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. And here we have David's declaration of that real sec- that second attribute. But once again, we don't want to diminish its personal quality, which is, is that there is nowhere that God is not. But what makes that awesome for us is that that's a revelation, once again, of his grace, that he chooses to be wherever we are. And that even includes, it, what does David says? Even if I make my bed in hell, Oh, Lord, you are there. I always pose this little theological question that I know just tweaks people. Is, it, um, is God in hell? It's a good question, isn't it? Because what do, what, do what do we often hear hell is defined as? Hell is out of the presence of God, right? Well, if God truly is omnipresent, that is that there is no place that God is not, can God not be somewhere? That's a philosophical quandary that we don't necessarily need to answer nor need to know the answer to. But I would argue that hell is absolutely a place where God is. In fact, I would say that God's compassion and his grace and his love continues to function even in his judgment. For he compassionately contains how far evil can go. It's a revelation of his grace toward us. For those that reject him, he will deal with that rejection and contain that evil so that we can continue in fullness of life with Jesus forever. And even there, what is God's wrath? God's hell is is ignited by the very judgment of God's God's anger towards sin. But what is his anger? It It is his love violated. God is not angry with you. He is angry with what destroys you. He hates your sin because it keeps you from him. And as long as we live in an era of of grace, we have the ability to respond to that gift. There is a day when final judgment will come. But even hell is a place where God is because there is nowhere that he is not. And God's presence is something that is inescapable. And there is an element of, of, of right understanding and, and a little fear and trembling, but the beauty of this is, is the power of, of, a, of a God who is willing to be available to a people that often ignore the fact that he's even around. You see, because we live in a day where we have so much and we need so little that we don't need God, therefore we don't experience his presence. I mean, why, we're so self-sufficient that we're unaware that God is present. I mean, the psalm declares what is actual. God is present whether you're aware of it or not. But the question is, is how do we become aware of this grace? Because God's presence is available to us. Jesus himself said, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. He either meant that or he's a liar. He's either with us or he's not. And we're, we're the most foolish people that have ever lived. He did mean it. And he said this, I think this is unique. I think this is, I want to just give you a little insight. I believe that God's been speaking to me about our church community. And that is this, is that Jesus said in Matthew 18 that there's a unique manifestation of his presence when God's people come together. He says, when two or more are gathered in my name, 
He goes, I am in the midst of them. I am, I am in the center. And I would argue that a definition of the church itself is a community who gathers around Jesus. It's a circle, a Jesus circle that sees Jesus and whom Jesus sees. Jesus says, I know my sheep and they know me. They hear my voice and they follow me. And I believe that one of the reasons that we as a church often are not experiencing God's presence in our lives is because we are such an individualistic, private um, society that we believe that Christianity, even our own faith, is a personal thing. And when we mean personal, we don't mean relational. We mean personal as it's my business, not yours. And that's how we treat life. That's why we have locks on our front doors. We're not like, I went to India. Everybody just, you can come in whenever you want. That's just the way they roll there. Because there's a strong sense of community and family. We don't have that in America. I I keep my door locked from my own family. (laughs) So the, the question that immediately arises, okay, why are we not experiencing the presence of Christ? Because God himself is a relational being. There is community within the Godhead. This is why we hold to the Trinity. And we being made in the image of God, he is constantly trying to push us back into relationship. And his presence is meant to be experienced in community. This is why when the preacher preaches and you feel like, how did he get my dirty laundry? Is he a psychic? Or why? He must know something. Did my wife tell him something about me? Um, it, you, have you ever had that moment where you're just like, it feels like the preacher's just talking directly to you? God's presence is being uniquely manifested as the word is declared and God's people have gathered together. And one of the reasons I believe that Christians do not experience the presence of God is because they are looking for it in the wrong places. They are looking for it by themselves. And you have not been saved into a vacuum. You have been saved into a family. The gospel is meant to be lived together. We are to work out our church salvation with fear and trembling. And the way that Jesus becomes known is through people. He's seen and experienced when God's people come together and speak the truth and love to one another. And the other thing is that when often, because we have so much in our lives and because we're so satisfied with what the world has to offer, we aren't looking for him. We aren't experiencing him. We don't care. That's why Craig's death was so... Um, it was so moving and meaningful for me because here is a man who was losing everything that mattered to him. I watched his girls weep over their father after I had to tell them that he was going to die. I watched them lay on their father's chest and mourn the fact that their father would be gone within four weeks. I watched a man who is incapable of using his own body, who is a brilliant pediatrician, one of the best in Portland, probably one of the best in the Northwest, who was no longer able to practice because the tumor was affecting his mind and affect his memory and his, and, his, and his body and his function, who was basically a quadriplegic by the end of his life, who had nothing. But the thing is, is that because everything was removed from him, this is where grace came in the most powerfully. God's presence is often experienced the most in our brokenness, not our victories. Because it's when our life is going well that we don't need God. That's why an African woman once said to a missionary very wisely, God is bigger here because we need him more. And I believe that we're looking for the presence of God. We want God to show up in some insane miracle. We want him to show up. I want him to show up above Craig's bed and shine light down on him and heal him of his cancer. But instead, he showed up in the way that Craig was able to continue to live a life of faith in the in in the light of the fact that he was going to die. 
that he was able to hold fast to his love and his compassion for people as his own body was shutting down on him. His ability to tell people that Jesus loved them, even as many would begin to question God's love when they're facing illness and being, leaving behind three girls and a wife. But that's not what grace does. Grace meets us in our brokenness and in our pain. It's called intersections of grace. And we need to be much better about being able to observe those moments of grace in our lives. I picked my own father up this week who I had not seen in 10 years. And he's a bit of a curmudgeon. If you don't need, know what that word means, it just means surly. <laughs> he lives in Alaska off the grid. He's lived a hard life. And he's not, the, he's not the necessarily the easiest man to communicate with. But I saw an intersection of grace that was so powerful, exhausted. I, I bought my father a plane ticket. And I was so convicted after watching Craig and the reconciliation that he had with his own family as he was about to die. I said, I don't have the right to not reach out to my father. I need to extend grace to him. Not because not because he deserves it, but because I have been transformed by Jesus and therefore he does deserve it. And so it says, honor your father. It didn't say if they're a good father. It just says, honor him. So I, I flew him down. I picked him up. Within 10 minutes, he was cussing at me because he couldn't smoke um, quick enough. And, uh, and then he insisted on smoking in my car. And I was just trying to extend grace all day. Um, and then I, I, he like decided to honor my willingness to let him smoke by not smoking. But then I had to stop every 15 minutes all the way back from Seattle to Portland so that he could take a smoke break, like three cigarettes. I'm like, Dad, how are you? How do you talk? <laughs> but we get to my house and my daughter, my seven-year-old little girl, Hattie, the first thing she does, here's a grandpa she's never met, never seen in her life, doesn't know him from Adam. She runs up. To, he's a total stranger to her. She doesn't even know what he really looks like. She runs up to him and wraps her arms around him and says, hi, Grandpa. And she was so excited. She just stood by him, kept her arm around him. And my dad had two strokes last year. He's only 60 years old, but he's just drank so heavily and, and abused his body so much that his health is failing, failing him much earlier than it ought to. And he couldn't walk very well. And I, and I said, we got to get Grandpa back to, his, to Aunt Penny's house so he can get some sleep because he'd been up for a whole day. And uh, my wife and I were standing in the doorway, and we were talking for a minute. And I look out the doorway, and there's my daughter grabbing my dad's hand and walking him to the car, helping him into the car. And I'm like, that is a moment where Jesus showed up. We're not seeing him because we're not looking for him. You know, I think that this is something that's so essential. Gerard Manley Hopkins, forgive me for getting choked up, but I've been through a lot of emotional stuff over the last week. Um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, one of my favorite British poets, and yes, I do love poetry, and I'm sorry if that's lame in your mind. <laughs> I always bring up poetry just hoping to find someone that's like, yes, I love poetry. You're like, what? I consider poets to be the guardians of language. Take that, non-poetry lovers. He says, Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his to the Father through the features of men's faces. In other words, Christ is moving. His grace is being seen all around us every day in ways that we're not even aware of. And what we need to begin to pray as God's people that God would give us the spiritual eyes to see the reality of God's presence. Okay? Grace means third, that I am not alone. Look at, um, uh, excuse me, second, that I am not alone. But now look at verse, verses 13 through 16. So it means that that God knows us, that I am not alone, 
And now we see that he has the power. Look at this next one. He has the power to change us. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. See God's power, this creative power to literally write our lives into existence and to shape us. And he knows us and he knows what he intended us to be. Sin perverts the original intent. God comes back to, in Jesus, to restore that intent, to bend back our lives into a righteous obedient life that has the ability now to live differently. He knows us and he is with us and he has the power to change us. His grace is a creative power and it has the ability to create um, a new life out of a broken, dead person. That's what Skeleton Bones, that song, was all about. And I think this is something that is incredible. In Philippians 2, when Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We often think, I I get this all the time, Christians like, I am who I am. I don't have the ability to... You know, I've all, I've, I'm too old to change my ways at this point. Or, you know, I'm, I, Christians all the time use excuses. I'm ADD or I'm, this is, well, welcome to the world. So am I, okay? We all are. We're a distracted generation. Or I have this illness or that illness. But we have to remember that first and foremost, as, new, as a new creation in Christ, as if anybody be in Christ, all things new, Period. And you may have been born that way, but you must remember that you have been born again if indeed the Spirit of God dwells within you. If I was to show you a picture of me from 1996 where I look like David Bowie's spirit brother, where I'm wearing raccoon eyeliner and burgundy lipstick, and I showed a picture to the church recently, and there were so many gasps that I swear a woman in the back screamed, like, no, not our pastor. I'm like, it's not now. I'm just showing you for the the laugh. I didn't mean to scare everybody. But a man who is fully entrenched in a desire to make a name for himself, to be known and loved by people at the expense of others, driven to hard drugs, barely graduated out of high school with a 1.7 grade point average or something. I've never gone to college or seminary, but God got a hold of my life through Jesus and the gospel when I was 27 years old in 1998, and he utterly transformed my life. One of the greatest evidences that God's grace is actually doing something is how it transforms your personal life. If you're not being changed by the gospel, if it's not helping you become a a man, a woman after God's heart, if it's not causing you to now in the freedom that you have received from Christ as he has set you free from the tyranny of yourself, if it has not freed you to move in obedience, then something's wrong with your idea of the gospel. If you think the gospel is about Jesus saving you out of hell and getting you into heaven, that's a, that's a false gospel. And Paul said, if anyone preaches any other gospel than that which I have preached to you, let him be accursed That's how harsh his words are because the gospel is not primarily about the forgiveness of sins. That's a part of it. But Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. And though we may have died with Christ and have been buried with him, we have been raised into the newness of life so that it is no longer I who live, Paul says, but Christ who lives within me. And that is accomplished through 
us as a community of faith being committed and dedicated to one another. There is no Christian growth outside of the church. People always ask me, is the church necessary to be a Christian? And I would say, absolutely, it's necessary. Unless you are in prison and are not allowed the gift of grace that community is, you have an absolute responsibility to be committed and and involved in a local church because that is God's way of expressing the reality of his son's bride, which is what we are. And so God has the power to change us. Don't say that he doesn't. If you understand grace, you know that you should be different. And you know that you're in the act of becoming all that Christ would have you be. So, So there you have it. Grace means now I have the power to live differently. And so what is our response to that? This is really the good litmus test. How should we respond to God's grace? Well, look at verses 17. We just got a few more minutes left. Look at, look at the response. Look at um, verses 17 and 18. The first thing we see, there's three responses. And the three responses to God's grace, the first one is wonder. Look how David responds. After meditating on God's knowledge and his presence and his power, he says, how precious to me are your thoughts Oh God, and when David says that, what he is speaking of specifically is God's thoughts toward him. How vast is the sum of them? You think, how could you think so much about me? What is there to even think about? But he says, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I'm still with you. And I love this because what David awakens to is the reality of grace. And what grace births within his heart is amazement. He's amazed. I think the church is in desperate need of a childlike wonder, a childlike sense of wonder, where we begin to see all around us those intersections of grace, that we would be amazed at God's goodness. One thing that Craig would do, it was so cool, as he, the sicker he got, the more compassionate and amazed he was by life. The more amazed he was by every end of, he saw beauty in everyone. And it's because the, the sicker he was, the more dependent he became on Jesus, the more dependent he became on Jesus, the more Jesus began to reveal himself to him. And, and Craig was able to, to, to see the world with just different eyes. So the last day of his life, I, uh, the last day he was talking, he the last day he quit talking and we just sang around him. But I sang, I would sing for him every time I was around him. And even in the hospital in Indianapolis, I would bring, he wanted me to bring my guitar. So I flew my guitar all the way out there. And I sat, we were in ICU where everyone there was dying. And it was a sad atmosphere. But Craig's room was like, we just laughed. We, we read the Bible. We watched Chris Farley videos. We, we play guitar. We both really liked Chris Farley. Um, and, and we just, and there was so much life that the nurses actually came to our room and asked if they could open the doors so that the other patients could hear me singing to Craig. And Craig loved covers, and he was like an encyclopedia of any era of music. And so I would do a worship song, and then I'd do Sweet Caroline. And then I'd do another worship song, and then I'd do Depeche Mode, Personal Jesus, or, um, you know, I mean, I could do even obscure stuff, like obscure songs off of, like, early Smith records. We were both, like, New Wave kids. I mean, it was amazing. We're doing Fleetwood Mac. I did, I was, I sang Harry Nielsen, uh, I can't live if living is without you. It was so good. It's just, man. Um, and every time I sing, he would just sing out and there was this wonder and the nurses would come and stand in the doorway and just like listen to us sing because we were 
because there is joy and amazement in, in the light of death and something as hideous and ugly as cancer, and it is all of that. We're able to revel in the grace of God and the grace of God produce within us a sense of wonder. And this is the thing that I would tell you first and foremost, that grace means for you and I that we have no right to be bored. Life is an adventure. It's a sacred romance. Christ calls us into the fullness of of expression, of, of knowing him and seeing the world, a world that is deeply broken and deeply needs something worth believing in. And if we have no amazement, what, what makes people, what would make anyone want what you have if you're not amazed that Jesus Christ stood in your place and became judged so that you could be free and full of life? The gospel doesn't amaze you. You don't understand the gospel. It doesn't amaze you. It amazes me. I pray that it amazes you. Look at verses 19 through 22, because the second, the second outcome response that we have to this amazing grace is, is, is devotion. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. These are really weird verses. We always wonder why these are in the Psalms. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you? Oh, Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, this is counterintuitive to us as a people who follow after Jesus who said, love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully use you and work against you. But know this, the purpose of the Psalms was to show, um, to give the people of Israel a, a, a language of, of devotion to God. And what the, what the psalmist does is gives us the ability to bring our feelings directly to God, which is the safest place that we can bring our anger and our hatred, and our frustrations. And that's exactly, because there's other songs where he's like, dash their babies' heads against the rocks. I'm like, that's just a little extreme. <laughs> and I'm like, and this is a song? They sang that? Like, how did you say, what was the melody to that line? Like, dash their heads against, the, was it like a beer tune? Like, this little bar, this <laughs> three, four, I don't know what, what. it's very disturbing. But, but I think that the, the reality is that when you look at the life of David, how, how did David treat his enemies in actual real life. Saul was his greatest enemy. And how did he treat him? Utter respect. I will not raise a hand against the Lord's anointed, he said. And yet the the anointing of the Lord had departed from Saul, which shows that David took his frustrations directly to the heart of God. So that's just a little, that's a bonus, bonus information for you today, because it really has nothing to do with my message. But what this really shows us is David's utter and absolute devotion, almost militant, zealous-like devotion to his God, the God who knows him, the God who is who is with him, the God who has the power to change him. He's he's amazed and he is loyal. There is a fidelity here, a faithfulness. And I think that this is is a powerful uh, and convicting reality for us as a church who tend to be incredibly divided in our affections because our devotion is split between our devotion to our own needs, our own wants, our own hopes, our own passions, our devotion is often to the things of this world and what the world has to offer, and yet people are more miserable than they've ever been before. I think the more we have, the less happy we are about it. We live longer than we've ever lived, and yet there's a higher level of depression in the United States than there ever has been in its history. More people are on medication to deal with their anxieties, and yet 
we, we've practically recreated Eden for ourselves on earth. But Eden is Eden only when God is in the middle of it. And see, our devotion is often split. I love Jesus on Sunday when I go to church for 45 minutes. And man, that was a great message. And then we're back to our devotion to the things of this world and to the flesh. And we feed those things and we become compromised and we become lukewarm. And God can do nothing with a divided heart. He works well with broken hearts, but he does not work well with divided hearts. And this compromise, and I'm not saying there's, there's plenty. You can love, you can love culture. You can, you can be, you can understand the, the, the world and enjoy the, the delights of, of the world, the food and, and family and places to go, all those things. But when those things become supreme, we're in deep trouble. And so devotion, loyalty is how do we order our lives? What is the order of your affections? For not even your children have the right to surpass your affection or your devotion to Jesus. Jesus says the gospel is like a sword in that matter. He says it'll turn mother against, uh, uh, it'll, it'll separate mother and father. It'll separate children from their parents. It'll divide whole family and households because the gospel of peace is cutting because the one thing it does, it only brings peace when we have truly laid down our lives, that's why so many Christians live restless lives is because they're not living in a place of surrender and devotion to Christ. And I think that it's important that we understand this because grace means, if it means um, that I am never bored, it also means that I am not divided. That my life will be for Jesus and I will hate what he hates, and I will love what he loves. You see, we're too comfortable in the gray because we often like a lot of the things that he hates. And we're actually not that fond of a lot of the things that he really loves. How many of you would say you spend more time watching damaging shows or playing video games or doing whatever you may do with your time um, than you do sharing the gospel with people that don't know Jesus? I mean, if everyone in the church took seriously the Great Commission to make disciples, um, we wouldn't have much time to do all the things that we do. We're all about our free time. As as my son said to me, Daddy, I like resting. Yes, we do. (laughs) We've created a whole series of technologies and powers that exceed the real necessities of life, and we're paying the price for that. And so now we have to ask a question. I was thinking about that. Like, does your devotion to Christ surpass your fear of man? I, I, I preach, I open air preach in Colonel Summers Park. We do our service in the park. It's this, in this park that's just filled with, with little hipsters and it's people smoking pot and doing drugs. And we have hecklers that yell at me every week when I preach there. But the bottom line is this, is that I realize that, am I afraid of people? I am. I'm not going to lie. I've never been a very brave man. But I will say this. My love of Jesus surpasses my fear of people. And because of that, I get up there in spite of my fear and I preach. And people get saved. It's weird. When the gospel gets preached, people get saved. I had no idea (laughs) that it works. In a liberal city like Portland, people get saved. Weird. But this is the call. It's a call to devotion. We must devote ourselves. When you're amazed by Jesus, you will be devoted to Jesus. And when you're devoted to Jesus, you will finally, look at this, in verses 23 and 24, you will surrender your life to him. And this is the only way. A disciple of Christ is is one who has left all to follow him. In 23 and 24, 
It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Notice the request. He has the freedom to come before his God who he knows and is known by and he speaks to him and he makes this incredible demand upon God. Not the normal demand that any of us would necessarily want to pray because it's a dangerous prayer. But he says, search my heart and show me things that I do wrong that I'm not even aware of. Gosh, I don't even really want him to show me the things that I am aware of. But to come into the light is to have darkness revealed. And to have darkness revealed is a troubling thing. This is why the gospel does violence to our hearts. It has to strip away the things that hinder our ability to know Jesus and be used by Jesus. And Jesus stepped into the midst of our existence, identifying himself entirely with us. But he did it in the very opposite way in that he refused to function independently from the Father. The whole life of Christ is a saving life. Jesus, in his life, in his childhood, through his, through his time as, as a carpenter, through his time as a teacher, all of it was a saving life because in it he functioned in total obedience to the Father. And he bent back that sinful nature into a righteous one. He showed us what righteousness actually looks like. And we have no power to do that in ourselves unless we surrender to Christ. And the counterpart to Christ's cross is our personal cross of self-denial. And see, grace, the outcome of grace, once you realize what God has done for you, it changes everything. They say that religion, uh, Keller always says, religion is man's attempt to reach, uh, or is man working for God's favor. But Christianity is what God has done for you that causes you now to live differently for him. We don't function from, a, I will earn an angry God's favor. We, we, we function in obedience to a gracious God who is gracious toward us when we didn't want anything to do with him. That's the grace of God. And that outcome of that grace is, Lord, my life is not mine. I don't even want control of mine because you're so good. It's not about, if I'm not good, he's gonna, he's gonna beat me down. It's, it's, he is so good, why would I want anything else? Why? C.S. Lewis put it best. He says, we're like children making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what it would be like to have a vacation at the sea. We're holding on to filthy rags when God is offering us life and eternal riches that are beyond our comprehension. It is the eternal weight of glory. It's the joy that allows us to be able to confront death like my buddy Craig, my dear friend, a man who showed me what grace is like. And so I end here today to tell you that grace in closing means that I am not my own. I'm not my own. And the freedom that we discover when we recognize that we are not our own is the great paradox of the Christian life. Because Jesus says, come to me, pick up your cross and follow me. But then he says, and I'll set you free. And the moment you try to keep your own autonomy is the moment you are enslaved. It's the moment that you find yourself hidden, not only from yourself, but from others and from God. But when you come into the light of Jesus, he brings you back together. He puts back together the pieces of a life that was missing grace, but grace puts us back together. God's goodness toward us. Do you know grace like this? 
Grace means I'm not my own. Grace means I am not divided. Grace means I am never bored. Grace means I have the power to live differently. Grace means I am not alone. And grace means I am known and cared for by the God of the universe.